This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. As artists, where we work can make a huge difference in what we create and how we feel about the process. If you have a passion for surface design, your creative space may look much different than an artist who is all in with creating mural-sized landscapes. Join us today as we talk with artist-in-residence and project manager Jane Davila about the opening of a brand new studio space that meets the needs of a unique cohort of artists. Welcome to the Quilting Arts Podcast, where we take a deep dive into the world of contemporary art quilting. I'm Vivica Denegri, and I'm here with my co-host, Susan Brubaker-Knapp. Welcome to the podcast, Susan. Hooray, glad to be back. Isn't it nice just to be able to have an opportunity to take a break and chat about art? It is. And so, I'm excited excited to be talking to Jane again because we talked to her, I think, more than a year ago. So, Yeah, she was in our first season of Quilting Arts podcast. And I just remember being so excited to talk with her about her brand new studio space, which she was sort of in the middle of creating. And I've got a little... Um, a little note to say here. I actually have seen her studio space. I feel so lucky. I went there a couple of weeks ago. I brought my camera and we had a lovely walk through the entire space. I met the owners. It was just such a great experience. So I'm looking forward to talking to her about that. Yeah. I can't wait to hear. But in the meantime, what have you been up to in your studio? Well, I You know, I have this exhibition going at the North Carolina Botanical Garden in Chapel Hill, and I did demonstrations for about four hours on Saturday, and it went great. There were a lot of people there, lots of questions, um, lots of people who were fiber artists who came, but also people who had never seen an art quilt in their lives. So yeah, it was great. And I've sold six pieces out of the exhibition so far. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Are they all florals? No, some of them are flowers. Some of them are flowering trees. I've got fungus. I've got a little bit of everything. Carnivorous plants. Yeah, that whole series that you were working on. was Right, right. Oh, that's so much fun. Now, did you bring your machine? I did. I brought my oldest machine, my oldest little Bernina, and I did some stitching. I thought I was going to get so much done. You know, I was going to be there for like almost four hours. And then I talked the whole time. Like people asked me so many questions. I barely got anything done. So... Isn't that it was, exhausting to do that? Like some, just being on for so long and, well, and showing? That's what I do. And, yeah, when I teach, that's what I do. So I'm used to that. I'm used yeah. to the constant question. So, and I love it. I love the energy. But um, yeah, it was great. It was cold. It was a little bit chilly. It was about 50 degrees. So I, I was bundled up and looked a little bit like an Eskimo. We were outside because we thought with COVID and everything, it would be nicer to be outside. And um, but yeah, it was wonderful. But your um, your work is being displayed on interior walls, correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And then we also had to juggle all of that with the fact that it was um, oh, it was final four weekend. And, you know, <laughs> I, I went to UNC for graduate school. Both of our daughters went to UNC. Um, and then my husband went to Kansas and my brother and my dad went to Duke. So it was just really... Oh my goodness. <laughs> that was so hard. <laughs> yeah, it was so not good. It's It was like really hard. All I was cheering for last night was, um, which was the championship game, uh, mm-hmm. was that nobody got hurt and that it was a good solid game. And, you know, there were some injuries, but right. um, yeah. I didn't a- watch a lot of it. I, I probably, I jumped in right as um, Kansas was just overtaking them in the second half. Mm-hmm. So I just probably at sort of an exciting point, but it was, you know, it was a weird, actually, it was a weird basketball season for me because I finally started caring. I hadn't really cared for a long time. <laughs> and then, um, you know, my, my, uh, team was Providence college friars. And so they were actually doing well this year. They got to the sweet 16 and they are ousted by Kansas. Yes, and so, sorry. yeah, you know, but it's, it's okay. Um, but it was actually really fun to see, 
you know, my alma mater do well, at least, you know, get to the sweet 16. They haven't been to the sweet 16 for a quarter of a century. So it was nice to see them back there, but then, you know, to have all the excitement of that underdog team, um, that was doing so well for a while. And then, you know, just to see the, the same faces, actually the same teams in the final game. Yeah, it was sort of fun. It was a thrill that things seemed to be more back to normal, as we like to say. Um, You know, it's one more thing that makes that reminds us that of the way it used to be. And for about two (laughs) years, it hasn't been. So, yeah, yeah, it was nice. Yeah. Yeah. And it's always good to see people win things, you know, and work hard, have a really good game, not have it be a blowout. And, you know, just to see young people who work so hard to get to the goal, basically yes. their goal of at least making it to the final four, to the, you know, finals, etc. So very right. fun. Right. But I used part of my uh, basketball watching time in the last couple of weeks um, doing crafts and getting all crafty in preparation for my son's fiance's bridal shower, which was, Ooh. you know, I am making paper flowers. I am, you know, embellishing things for the party. I'm trying to find fun and creative ways that we can all have a good time. We found a Prosecco truck that's going to come and serve Prosecco and sangria. So um, it's not going to be super fancy or anything. It's at a um, just a little um, farmer's market area that we have here in Southern Connecticut and just going to have a fun time together. So it's just prepping for that with her mom and sister has been really nice. Oh, that's very neat. Yeah. Yeah. And as far as quilty things, we've got some really nice things going on in the Northeast right now. We've got a um, a traveling show from Quilt National. So they, they break Quilt National up into three different um, traveling shows. Mm. And I haven't been to it yet, but in one of our local museums, it's less than an hour from me. We have um, show number two. So I have to do that next weekend. And actually this weekend, um, Luana Rubin's Gaia um, gallery of, of work is going to be in Lowell. And she that's the last time this weekend um, that you can see it. And so that's there. And we've also got another little show at the Florence Griswold Museum, which is less than an hour for me as well. And that is with 18th century and 19th century bed coverings. So I feel like oh, I have nice. all of these options to expand my mind that's, you know, all around me. It's really yeah. fun to be inspired by things like that, that you That's normally great. don't see, you know, mm-hmm. so a lot of fun. Yeah. Things are starting to tour again too. So we have more to go see. One of the most exciting things though, is just being able to get out of my house and go visit other artists. Mm. So I had an opportunity, it must've been about two weeks ago to go to Bridgeport, Connecticut and meet up with our artist in residence, Jane Davies. So I am very excited to bring her into the conversation, too. Jane Davila describes herself as a, quote, girly girl who's good with power tools, a wordsmith, an artist mixing media, a textile designer, and a duck liner upper. She's been doing all of that and more in the past two years as she has organized the complete renovation of an old corset factory in Bridgeport, Connecticut to create artist studios. Welcome so much to the podcast, Jane. Thank you. So excited to be here. The last time we had you on, it was about a year and a half ago, I think. And I just couldn't wait to continue the conversation because you were in the probably the doldrums of trying to pull together this whole big project. And I believe at the end of our conversation, we said something like, when you get it done, we need to have you back to talk about everything that went on. So tell us, when did you move into your new studios? Uh, So we had our grand opening in November last year, 2021. And um, we all started moving in, I want to say starting in September. And we got our certificate of occupancy October 1st. So that was when you could really start to unpack. You could move your stuff in, but you had to leave everything in the center of the room. And the inspectors had to be able to walk kind of the perimeters of every room. So your stuff was there. You were excited about your space. 
but you couldn't really do anything until you got that final go ahead. And that was October 1st. What would you have done if they said no? (laughs) Can you imagine? (laughs) No. (laughs) It got really hairy there at the end. You know, if you've ever bought a house, you know that at the very last second, there's always something unexpected that seems like it's going to screw everything up and then it somehow gets solved. And I think construction projects are the same way. There's always a thing at the end that you didn't expect that just sort of gets cleared up miraculously at the very, very end. So it happened. (laughs) Well, we're talking about the very, very end, but why don't you talk about the very, very beginning and why you needed to find a new space for yourself and other artists? Sure. So I actually have had a studio um, in another building, another old factory building in Bridgeport um, since 2013. And um, about, I want to say four years ago in July, um, we found out from the current landlord that he was, and this is like the perpetual problem of every artist community all over the world. You find this cool old space. It doesn't cost very much because that's like the biggest requirement. It's light and money, right? It needs to be cheap. So we had found this, you know, space. I had joined this community and then you fix it up because you're an artist and you mm-hmm. want it to be pretty and you want it to be aesthetically pleasing. And, you know, you see the potential in things that maybe other people don't see. And so, you know, a number of years into the process, it was getting fixed up and the owner of the building um, started getting kind of um, greedy, I guess is the right word, and <laughs> decided that he was going to raise the rent. And that wasn't going to work for any of the artists. It was, you know, he was, he wanted way more money than the artists could afford. So we started casting about to look for other buildings. And I started looking on commercial real estate sites and talking to the people at the city. The city actually owns a lot of old buildings. And I was hoping we would find like the perfect building for a dollar a year. And then we could raise money to fix it up. And that did not work whatsoever. Um, but we eventually found a building that the owners were um, very excited about it being an art studio. One of the owners is an artist, which um, mm-hmm. is awesome. And he wanted a studio in the building. So that worked out super well. And um, so, you know, but before that we had looked at, there were a group of us, like a core little committee. And we had looked at probably 20, 25 buildings all over Bridgeport. Um, and lots of them didn't work for various reasons. They were too small. Um, you know, we had a requirement of 30,000 square feet, which is a pretty big space. Um, as, at a minimum, it could be bigger. I could fill it, you know, it could be bigger. Um, it needed to have big windows. It needed to have light. It didn't, it shouldn't have had things like asbestos or any sort of uh, brownfield situation or environmental hazards because those are super expensive to fix. And it was something we didn't want to get into. Uh, it, you know, should be structurally sound and shouldn't need like massive amounts of repair. So it was a little bit of a unicorn and we spent, um, I want to say a good six months or so in and out of all these crazy old buildings looking for something that would be perfect. And then eventually found the one that we're in now, which was great. It, it certainly is a beautiful building. Susan, you would love it. There's light everywhere. There's slop sinks in areas for mm. everybody to use. And there's a gallery when you walk in. So it seems to me, um, Jane, like you're sort of creating a beautiful space, not only for the artists, but for the community. And that's one thing that I felt immediately when I walked in. But it could have been because you were hanging a show when I walked in. And I just felt so drawn to all the art for so many different reasons. So tell us about some of those community spaces that you have created within that building. Sure. So the thing that's really cool about the building is that it didn't have any interior walls when we first saw it. The windows had been boarded up, so it was pitch dark. Um, So you really had to use your imagination. But again, like we're artists, we can use our imagination. And it's a, it's a building that has three stories. It's about 56 feet wide and over 200 feet long, which means if you think about that being a very long, narrow rectangle, there's a lot of windows in it. So some of the buildings that didn't work out for us were very square and ended up, you know, you'd have studios with no windows at all. I knew the second I saw this building that it would be perfect for artist studios because every space would have windows and they'd have big, beautiful windows. Having had a studio, you know, first back in the 90s, 
um, actually the late 80s in an old schoolhouse in uh, just north of New York City. And then, um, and being just part of the community at that point, and then having my previous studio for almost eight years and, and running that building, being the manager of that building, knowing what it looks like when the public comes in, knowing what it looks like when the artists are there using the space, what works, what doesn't work. It was easy to develop a list of what's ideal. You know, what would, anytime you start a big project, you have like your dream list. What, if you could have anything you want, what would you have? And so I started with a list like that. And I started really thinking carefully about scale and proportion and what it feels like to move in a space and what it feels like when there's just, you know, a handful of people and what it feels like when there's 200 people in the same space. And so I mentally started laying out walls the first time I ever saw the building (laughs) in the dark. (laughs) Um, And then, um, you know, very quickly started measuring and drawing up uh, some conceptual drawings for the architects to work from where I was really planning spaces that would work really well for accommodating the public, especially on the first floor. You have such an incredible range of skills though, Jane. I mean, when I think about the scale of this project and your previous one, I would have been so overwhelmed. What makes you brave enough to jump into something this big and to take it on, to manage it and to help all these other artists? It just seems like a a huge task to me. You know, it's funny when I was a little kid, I wanted to be an architect Mm. (laughs) and I can remember like lying on the deck at my parents' house with graph paper and drawing floor plan after floor plan after floor plan for years, honestly. Um, And then that isn't the path that my life took, but I think I've always had the passion for visualizing things in 3D and what spaces feel like. And I do interior decorating actually for people, for money. So that's like another kind of a side gig. Um, And I just really love, I guess, planning space and thinking about how people use space and how to make it functional and aesthetically gorgeous. And I think sometimes there, there are points in life where you stand on the edge of that cliff and you think to yourself, can I do this? Can I not do this? Should I try? Should I not try? What skills do I need to be able to accomplish this beyond determination? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Just guts. I yeah. mean, just just the ability to take that risk, that chance. And I, I kind of felt in this instance that if I didn't do it, nobody was going to do it. Hmm. And so I I mustered all that up and just jumped. And anything I needed to kind of learn, I picked up on the way. I mean, I know things about handicap accessibility and freight (laughs) elevators that are a hundred years old that has never been in my head before. But now I know so much about all of these things because it was necessary for the project. Have you consulted with people in other cities that want to do things like this? Because it seems to me that you'd be a great person to advise other people or groups about doing something like this. I've had a few people ask about um, hiring me as a consultant to set up uh, an arts community like this, because it, it's not just like the mechanics of creating the physical space that you're going to be in, but it's also, and, and just as, or more importantly, setting up community standards and um, kind of guidelines for how a community exists within the community of artists exists within that building to ensure the greatest amount of success possible. And so that part's really interesting too. It is. It's absolutely, you know, it, it it doesn't work. Like you could do one or you can do the other, but if you do both, then you're going to be much more successful. I'm sure that the artists have to be thinking that way when they're thinking about moving into a, a space like this. Cause you know what, you can control what happens in your home, but you can't control necessarily what happens in a communal space. So what are some of the things that if I were an artist looking for an art community to join or an artist space to join, what are the things that I should be thinking about when I'm interviewing that space? So that's, that's a good question. I think, um, I think that you would, the thing, the thing that for me, it all boils down to is respect. 
I think that it is very hard to exist in community as someone joining a community or a community inviting someone in to join you if there is not respect in there. The kinds of problems that pop up in communities are, uh, especially with shared spaces, are noise, for one, smells, because we're artists and we tend to sometimes use things that are stinky. Um, the space itself, how people are using it, whether they're leaving stuff around, do they clean up after themselves? I mean, you think about processes that you do now, if you do painting or dyeing or things like that, especially if you're doing it in your house, you may have a wet studio, you may have a sink in your studio, and it's up to you entirely whether you leave that space as clean as it was when you started, or whether you say to yourself, because it's just you, I'm going to clean it once a week or at the end of the week, or frankly, I don't care if it's messy or not. But when you're in a communal space and other people are using it, it's important that everybody be really respectful of each other and the space so that everyone, there's no friction, there's no tension, there's no drama, because all of those will kill creativity. And there's no time for that. You know, if you're working by yourself at home, the only drama is potentially coming from your spouse and your kids, you know, or other people you live with. But in a in a community with other artists, and especially the larger it is, the more potential for that exists, that kind of friction and tension and drama um, becomes overwhelming. It becomes something that you can't stop thinking about. And so that needs to be something that's not there or as minimal as possible. And so I like some rules, but not lots of rules. <laughs> you know, I think guidelines are really good. Sound guidelines, cleanliness guidelines, um, you know, smell guidelines, fire hazard guidelines, things like that where everyone can exist together and you know that everyone's going to be treated equally and fairly. So if you're an artist looking for a space and you go in, do you recommend that you meet all the artists and talk to them and really thoroughly kind of interview the people that are in that group? And what happens if it changes and new people come in or there's there's problems after that? So the most important thing is probably the leadership, but Mm -hmm. I would definitely talk to the other artists. Um, I'm a big believer in going with your gut. Like I am, you know, I'm the gatekeeper is probably not the right word, but I'm the first person that people meet when they are coming to interview for a space or to look for a space. And I really go with my gut. I pay attention to body language. I pay attention to what people are saying and how they're saying it. um, The kinds of questions that they ask the way they answer my questions, because I need to know that the people joining my community or our community are people who are going to fit in well, who are going to behave professionally and respectfully. And I think if you're, as an artist, going into a community, I would talk to as many artists as you can find that day. If there's a guide that you can grab that has uh, contact information for any of the artists, you may even consider emailing some of the people on there and saying, you know, what's your experience? Is there, what would you change? That's a good question. What would you change about the space um, that you're in right now and see what their answer is to that? Because mm-hmm. that will be very telling um, when they answer it. And Um, I would also look around. I would look around to see what's cleaned and what's not cleaned. And I would ask about some of the mechanics. Who does the cleaning? Some places have somebody that's hired to do it. And some places expect the artist to chip in and do it. If that's not something you're interested in doing or don't like, um, then that would, you know, be a reason to choose or not choose a place. And I think too, like what level of participation is expected of the artist. Some places like the Torpedo Factory in Virginia actually expects and demands that the artists be open for, I think it's 20 hours a week to the public, you know, and if you're somebody who's super introverted and you have a process that does not like to be interrupted and you don't like to be interrupted, that may not work for the way your work your workflow goes. If you're extroverted and you love talking to people about the public and you don't mind interruptions, then that might be an ideal location. But every place has its own set of guidelines and rules about how this community is run. And that's important to know. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. 
Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. You know, it reminds me of the community garden that my family participates in, in our local, you know, our local town. We have a beautiful community garden. Um, you might see all sorts of things being done wrong in someone else's plot, but you're not allowed to go in there and fix it. Um, you know, we have these, these um, work days that everyone's expected to work and pitch in. And if we don't, then we are not necessarily fined, but you have to pay more for your plot if you don't help and, and do what you're supposed to do. And, you know, the whole point is to create a community and to have um, a place where the whole town, anybody in the town could come and see a beautiful garden and see people creating vegetable plots and flower plots and things like that. But it's, it's as much for the community as it is for the individuals in the, um, the gardening community to be able to have something like that. And, you know, I guess there's a parallel for me too, because um, as a gardener, I have a garden plot at home, just as a quilter, I have a quilting space, a studio in my home, somewhere that I can, you know, go late at night and work on a project or something like that. But a big part of me would really love to um, jump in my car and join your little you know, community over in Bridgeport too, because after seeing it and experiencing it, I see the benefits of both sides. Yeah, I've been really interested in doing something like that. But I think in the end, the the price is what keeps me from doing it. And I guess it would be interesting to hear you talk a little bit about your pricing structure and what the advantages are to somebody like me who does have a home studio to maybe being in a more public space like that. And I know some of it is that people you have, you have days when people come in and you're more exposed to the public. So maybe you sell more, but can you talk a little bit about, about that? Like if you were trying to sell me on the idea of why, you know, why I would need a separate studio space at a place like yours. Sure. So some of the major advantages, first it's space, like dedicated space. It doesn't have to do double duty as anything else. Um, it is your space, which means that you can um, sort of set it up and have it reflect you personally. Um, whereas if you live in a house with other people, you often have to take their wishes into consideration um, in terms of decorating or, you know, just set up in general, you know, like your level of neatness may not be the same as the other people you live with and vice versa. So it's solely your space and you get, it gets to be just exactly the way you want it to be, the way you set it up. The other uh, big advantage is that community is a, is an advantage. There are, for most of us, when we work at home, it's very isolating to be working in your studio by yourself. And, and that's often good because you can focus and you can concentrate and you can kind of dip in and out and, and work on things as you have time. The uninterrupted time in a studio can be... Um, really helpful and really focusing. I find it so much easier for separating work and, and home as a freelancer. That makes all the difference to me in my quality of life. But just knowing that I can walk out of my door into the hallway at any moment and ask somebody else for an opinion about maybe something I'm working on or a technique I'm not as familiar with and I'm trying to get some effect that I, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not able to attain with what I already know. And I can ask somebody, do you know how I would be able to do this? I'm trying to do something a little sparkly here. Do you have any ideas? And that person maybe works in resin and says, oh, there's this material that I use in my work that might work on fabric. Let me tell you about it. And I even have a little piece you can try it, you know, from my studio, or this is where I order things from. And I know they have a great selection and good prices like that resource sharing is phenomenal. You don't, mm -hmm. it's really hard to get that at home. Um, you can get it through the internet, but it's not as immediate as just kind of walking outside. There is of course a social aspect to it as well. And, and that again is, you know, totally up to you as a person, whether you want to be socializing or not. Opportunity, though, I think is the big one. Um, 
Now, I know, Susan, you did an open studios at your house this year because I was watching you on Instagram. And right. It's amazing. And, and so you know what it's like now to have people come into your space and look at your things and have to explain what you're doing over and over and over again for hours on end. Right, um, right. <laughs> and hopefully sell some things, right? I, I sold a lot. I, that, I was really surprised by that. And it may open my eyes a little bit about maybe one of the advantages of being in a space like yours. Yeah, exactly. Because we not only have days where we are inviting the public in, we call them open studios. And we just had one a couple of weeks ago. Um, and we're fortunate enough to have over 600 people show up, which was awesome. And most of the artists had sales or had made contacts with gallerists or curators or other things during that event. But each of the artists in the building is also having visitors on a really regular basis as well. So someone may be having a gallerist come in to see their work or a collector or someone else, and they're walking through the halls and they're seeing your work hanging on the, the walls outside of your studio. And I've sold pieces right off the wall to people who just happen to be in the building visiting someone else. Mm-hmm. And you never know when that opportunity is going to come. And I know, you know, other of the artists have had that experience as well. They've been invited to be in shows or they've sold work or have had other opportunity just by being in the building. But I also think that when you make that commitment to yourself as an artist to spend the money on an outside studio, it sort of gives the impression or is that you are um, taking your career really seriously and that you're treating yourself as a professional. And I think the people seeing you in a building like that as well are also saying, hey, this person is really taking themselves professionally in their career. They've made a commitment to their career. They're making an investment in their career. This is not a hobby for them. This is a serious endeavor for them. And there's an expectation maybe that that artist is more professional or more dedicated than someone working at home. I don't know that it's a fair assessment, but I think there's a perception there that that's what's going on. Do you have, are most artists financially, um, do they do they sell enough work or is it worthwhile enough to them to pay the rent? Because the rent in a lot of places around here is pretty expensive. Um, so you've got to make sure that it's going to be worth the money to do it. Yes, that's certainly true. And most places will require you to sign a year's lease. So it mm-hmm. can be a really big commitment. But I found like in our building and in other buildings that I've been in and visited, there are spaces kind of in every size. Um, and you can start out with a small space and see what that's like. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know that a lot of the artists have kind of a plan for making money. Like some offer classes in their studios. Um, some of them have outside gigs, you know, they have other jobs and then these, the studio is the thing that they, they pay for and, and work and they don't worry quite so much whether it's self-sustaining. Um, some people are retired and pay for it. You know, it's part of their monthly budget. They just pay for it because it's important to them. Mm-hmm. There are quite a number of artists and I enjoy um, watching them. I don't, I think it's much harder for quilt artists to make a living selling quilts, like art quilts mm-hmm. than it is for a painter, just from my observation over the years. But I have um, seen quite a few of the artists in our building make a living at selling paintings. And, and it's really something amazing to be kind of striving for and, you know, kind of hoping that all of us can get there someday. But it's so interesting, especially in a, you know, in a, like a building on like ours and other buildings that I've been in, there are people in every level of their career. There are mm. people just out of art school or just starting in, in their journey. And there are people who've been doing it for, you know, 40 years and their work is in museums. And that experience of being all together kind of shows you that it is a journey and that it's not a linear line, but, you know, it kind of has all sorts of little divergences that will take you in different directions if you want to follow it. And, you know, it's just, it's just rich. It's a very rich experience. Have you experienced or have you seen other artists in your building experience um, something where when people meet each other and the ideas kind of converge and it takes your work in a different direction because of the other artists that you've, that you've met or that you've talked about work with. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is true. Um, 
sometimes I think it's there's a subconscious inspiration and sometimes there's a very, very conscious inspiration. So for example, one of the artists in the building right now is a young woman who's a printmaker and she has a press in her studio. And when we started talking about the history of the building, we were kind of all getting together and chatting and we were talking about the building having been a corset factory. And at its heyday, there were 500 women working in this factory every single day. Mm. And thinking about that now, there's not even, there's just over three dozen of us in a building that, you know, can accommodate 500. Although the, the fire department would tell us that only two <laughs> modern, modern codes are different. So she, you know, was listening to that and she was asking questions about that and kind of doing research about that. And she developed a whole series of prints based on the corsets and the shapes of corsets. So she made these beautiful prints that were like a line drawing of corsets with flowers coming out of the top of it. And then she hand colors mm-hmm. the flowers in. So it's sort of influenced, like the place itself is influencing the work that she's making, not just the conversation with the other artists. Mm-hmm. I saw those prints when I was there. And, you know, it just reminds me that having that beautiful long hallway, 56 feet, you said? 200 feet. Or two, I'm sorry, 200 feet, 56 <laughs> wide, 200 long. So it's almost like a shotgun kitchen kind of thing, a very, very long hallway with a, with a door or a window at either end. Having that space, it's almost like you have always got a gallery. You always have a place to show your work when you have that. And someone just walking by can be so inspired by it. It's yeah. really great. And, and in fact, when, when I designed this space, I intentionally made the hallways very wide because I wanted them to act like galleries. Because I think the value is not just in having the space in the studio, but it's also the display space on the outside of the studio because of those opportunities that can come along. And because I think it also forces you to think about how your work looks hanging in your space and someone else's space and hopefully your potential customer's space and having, you know, regular events where you're open to the public forces you to finish stuff because you want to show new things all the time. So it, it, you know, these, these things that would ordinarily kind of pile up and you'd think, Oh, that's, you know, percolating. I'm going to think about that later. You know, you've got an event coming up in six weeks. You think, well, I'm going to finish that. And I'm going to think about how it's going to be displayed and mounted and maybe it's framed or maybe it's hung or, you know, and, and you're watching how everybody else is doing it too. And you're kind of getting sparks of ideas of how you can do that. So that outside space for me is, is almost as important as the inside space. It makes you up your game. You know, you really do have to keep up with the Joneses next door because they're having a show. You have to put something new outside your door. And, you know, it's incredibly important to do that. It's almost like you're in a little um, inspiration incubator in a way. Yeah, it really helps your productivity for sure. Hmm. Right, right. Well, one thing that I was truly inspired about um, the building itself is that it has such a sense of place. And I'm seeing this more and more, I think, with some of the buildings that are being repurposed. Obviously, it was a factory and it's, you know, more than 100 years old and very bricky and, you know, really sort of gritty and urban, cool kind of of space. But what I just enjoyed so much was walking around and seeing those little special touches. And, you know, as as someone who had wanted to be an architect, I could tell that because I saw all these beautiful doors and special windows and little pieces of metalwork that seemed to be of the same time period, but might possibly not have originated in that building. Can you tell us how you, you know, embellish the building with this kind of decoration? Sure. So the building is from 1907, around that time. Um, the elevator is that old for sure. And that's um, a Victorian era. So I did a little bit of research about what would have been appropriate in a building like that. Now, the building is not, the, the, what we were doing was not a restoration, right? We weren't bringing the factory back to what it was in 1907. Thank goodness, because no one wants that. Right? (laughs) We were doing a renovation. um, And we actually just won an award of merit from Preservation Connecticut, which is a statewide organization, a nonprofit, that gives awards to historic rehabilitations and renovations and restorations 
um, all over the state. So we won a prize for the work that we did on the building, which is amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, So I started thinking about, so for example, there were, there were no facilities in the building at all when we first looked at it. It had not been occupied for 40 to 50 years. So there was no working plumbing. There was no heat. There was no electricity. There was nothing in the building. And so, you know, everything had to be created from scratch. And, you know, knowing enough about architecture to know that on a multi-floor building, you know, you stack the bathrooms on top of each other from floor to floor so that you save on plumbing costs. Um, knowing the building codes um, and that we needed a total of 11 toilets for that size building, which <laughs> was ridiculous for the number of artists that we have. But that's like, there's a formula for figuring out how many people fit in a hundred square feet and that's how many toilets you need. So um, designing bathrooms from scratch, there was like literally nothing. If you think about designing a house and all you're starting with are the outside walls, that's what I was doing here. So we had columns and we had outside walls and that was it. So, you know, research into the codes for, um, you know, ADA accessibility for, you know, the needs of the artists, because they're very particular, because we've got, we need slop sinks, we need all sorts of things. And then the aesthetic part of it. And in, in Victorian era, what you would have seen in a bathroom are things like small penny round tiles or very small hexagon tiles. And so I took that idea and I made it more modern and I did... Uh, more modern colors and more modern scale or shape. So the bathrooms all have very large matte black hexagon tiles. So it becomes a nod to the history of the building without being like a slavish recreation of the history of the building. I, I didn't want it to be mistaken for the original. I wanted it to be an updated version of the original. And also keeping in mind that every single choice in the building had to be done with the eye toward the most important thing being the art. So nothing could be so attention drawing that the art would be the thing that was overlooked because that's why the artists are there. That's why they're paying for space. You know, you don't want people standing there with their mouths hanging open, staring at light fixtures and not the art that's hanging on. (laughs) (laughs) Different kind of illumination, right? You want the illumination to be on the art, not the art. Yeah. And I also was trying to create some little moments too, where like there are light fixtures that are cool. I think they're really neat. There were like what would have been appropriate, period appropriate in the building, what would have been there originally were milk glass pendants. And those are those white kind of Mm -hmm. frosted glass uh, pendants. And I found a very modern interpretation of a milk glass pendant that looks like a kid's toy. It looks like a top. They're like twisted. And those are in all the kitchens and the bathrooms, but they're, they're just white. They, there's, they're white and black and no other colors. So that my hope was that as people were touring the building and they were looking at the art and being entranced by all the color and texture and, you know, all the loveliness that they might glance at a direction like that and just go, Oh, that's so cool. But it was just like a little moment. It wasn't the, you know, kind of stealing the show. It was just a little, right. I was trying to create those little moments here and there. And I really enjoyed that you had things like um, doors that you'd been able to salvage um, at an architectural salvage space. And, you know, just just little things that said, hey, this is a unique building. These are unique things from the area. And isn't it great that we can incorporate some of that into our space as well? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there was so much sweat equity that we, the artists, put in on that building. There are 13 banisters on the stair. There's two staircases. The original banisters are solid wood. They're absolutely gorgeous with little brass pieces of hardware. And we did the research to find out the best way to restore them from, you know, a hundred years of hands rubbing on them. So it's denatured alcohol. And so we spent a week and a half, a whole bunch of us and teams rubbing these things down with denatured alcohol and bringing the wood back to life again. And it's gorgeous now. It's got the age and the patina and the history of it, but it's clean <laughs> and it feels good when you rub on it. You know, it's not, it doesn't feel gooey anymore. <laughs> the thought of touching something with hundreds of hands touching it every day, it, in some ways during the time of COVID, don't you just want to <laughs> not touch anything? You know? <laughs> totally. 
But, you know, even walking up the stairs, you can see the indentations of where all those hundreds of feet were. And I get this like little frisson walking up the stairs, like this little chill about seeing that little indent in the stairs and thinking of all the feet that walked there before me. And because it was a corset factory, there are tens of thousands of pins stuck in the cracks in the floors. Oh, wow. Oh, I bet that's really cool. You can never walk barefoot there ever, 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 because we've all gotten stuck with pins for, you know, forever. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. But there's so many pins and you can just, we found so many cool things in the building, even though it was empty and it had been stripped of everything, tucked up inside the window wells, there would be pieces of fabric or uh, time cards from the the, uh, early 1900s or... um, we even found pattern pieces for cutting out the, the different pieces for the fronts of the corsets. Like these just stuffed in there to keep you, keep you from getting warm. Keep the yeah. bruises out. Yeah. Buttons, hundreds and hundreds of buttons. I mean, just crazy stuff. And what did you do with it all? Do you have it? Oh, we saved it. I'm going to do shadow boxes and hang them up somewhere. Cause Ooh, that would they're, be so they're like super dirty. We, we also found a cigar. It's not a cigar. Like, are you sure inside. that was a cigar? It was a cigar. It was stuffed inside the ceiling. <laughs> it was so gross. Oh my goodness! What you can find? Have you? Have you? Do you have a ghost? Um, yeah, we actually do. So, we've heard from a couple of people that they've looked at, the, like, kind of looked at the building when nobody's in there, and they see like the shadow of a figure of a woman. And we always talk about the ladies in the building. And we know that they are so happy that we're there and they're, we're, they're so happy that we're enjoying the building. The thing that everybody talks about when they come to visit us is the vibe of the building. And everybody says, this building has such a good vibe. And I think, you know, we, this is something we discussed as a group recently. When you think about all the places that you go in your life on a regular basis, you go to work, you go to school, you go to church, you go to different places, especially to work. How many times in your life have you gone to a place consistently every single day where you think, I love it here. I'm so happy here. And every single one of us have the experience of walking into that building and saying, I love it here. And I'm so happy here. And it just, it really fosters creativity, all of it. There's not a part of it that isn't working right now. And I'm delighted, honestly. Well, it sounds like you have done a lot to create that vibe, though. It's not just the building. It's what you have turned it into. Oh, well, thank you. And it, it was definitely a team effort because there were tens of thousands of hours of artist sweat equity on that. Um, so many people learned how to do things that they had never done before. And all of us shared skills and tools. And we sanded floors. Anything you didn't need a license for. <laughs> We painted. I mean, if you think of what artists do best is we paint. We painted walls. We scraped. We, you know, everything. It just, it has been such a labor of love. It really has. Well, now you're in your last space. You made it cool and then it got pulled, the rug got pulled out from under your feet. What what protections are in place now in your new spot um, to keep that from happening? <laughs> if there are. Yeah. <laughs> We have an amazing relationship with the owners of the building and they, um, they are there almost every single day, a weekday. They, they live in Manhattan. They drive, they come up on the train actually almost every day. They have a space in the building themselves. Mm. As I said, one of them is a painter and they, they also feel the vibe. They were part of that sweat equity. They were right there with us, shoulder to shoulder, working on the building. They are as passionate about the building and what we are all trying to accomplish as all of us are. And, you know, barring unforeseen thunderbolts from the sky, I think we're going to be doing this for a really long time. We're so fortunate that that they are so... Um, emotionally invested and financially invested in this project, it never would have been possible without them. Oh, that sounds like the best. Yeah. That sounds like the best possible scenario. So that's terrific. And they love you and what you've done. I have to say, I met them when I went and um, it was a love fest. I have to say (laughs) it was total love fest, but um, how wonderful to have such great people on your side all around. So congratulations, Jane. I think you must be just walking on air and 
And I'm so pleased for you. It's a great place. And all I can say also is that if there's ever a space that comes open, my hand is up. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today, Jane. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. So one thing that I took from that conversation is that Jane really loves working where she works and being where she is. And I was thinking as she was as she was talking about how much I love being in my studio and that it really is a space that I can enjoy working and creating and making something new. And I know that you probably have that same love and joy of your studio because I've seen the photos, Susan. I still haven't seen it in person. I've seen photos because we've shared it on um in the magazine on, on the pages of the magazine, but didn't, couldn't you feel that from her? Oh yeah. Yeah. And what a wonderful gift that is to have that kind of passion for what you do and pour it into what she and the other community that she's created, um, pour it into all the work that went into that building. And then to have a place that you love that much, that is just perfect. And you know, it's all about the passion for us, isn't it? And how we can either build a space and a community for somebody else and ourselves like Jane has done or build that space. It doesn't have to be a physical space either. And I think about the communities that we have built with Quilting Arts and the community that you're building with your own followers as well, Susan, and about how we can affect others and bring that joy or that sense of community. And I know that you've recently done a project to build community and to help others as well. And that is your sunflower pin for Ukraine. Do you want to just tell us quickly about that before we move on to our quote? Yeah, you know, I I, um, watched what was happening with the war in Ukraine and I wanted to do something. And, oh boy, I'm so excited. Um, People have donated more than $6,000 already. I I offered this little sunflower pin that people could download for free and it's on my website and then asked people to contribute if they could, what they could. And it's amazing. It's amazing what we can do together, you know? That's right. And feeding the world, which is what you're doing through this World Central Kitchen donation, is, you know, your way of bringing the world to a better place. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for having that kind of a a mindset and having the talent to put it out there. So well, thanks to everybody who contributed, really. <laughs> <laughs> and there's always time for more. I'll put a little link in our show notes, but I'm sure you have a quote for us. Why don't you take us on out with a quote? This is by Joseph Campbell, who was an American writer. He lived from 1904 to 1987. To have a sacred place is an absolute necessity for anybody today. You must have a room or a certain hour of the day or so where you do not know who your friends are. You don't know what you owe anybody or what they owe you. This is a place where you can simply experience and bring forth what you are and what you might be. So thank you all for being part of our sacred space on the Quilting Arts Podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. This podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. Our show notes with images, links, descriptions, and more are available on quiltingdaily.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll connect next time.